Welcome to the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, coming to you from the Get the Knack podcast studio in Ocean Shores, Washington. And I am joined by a very, very special guest this week. She is an award-winning journalist. She is a film and TV critic. She's done some acting. She's a been a television co-host. But one of the reasons I like her and one of the reasons I wanted her to come on the show, she is a horror fanatic like yours truly. Please welcome to the program, Chauncey K. Robinson. Chauncey, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here talking some horror and everything else. <laughs> Abs- absolutely. And you know, the last year or two, we've had some uh, horror movies come out that have really uh, been divisive, have caused a lot of like online controversy. We'll get into that in a minute. But I wanted to wanted to talk to you about your career. You know, you grew up in, in New Jersey and you're living in Southern California now, but as far as content and uh, film and the visual arts, you've done a little bit of everything. You're active on YouTube, big time on social media. Uh, you do a lot of live streaming. So kind of give me your, your career in a nutshell. Uh, well, I, uh, I, I guess well, in a nutshell, um, <laughs> I am someone who really, first and foremost, I am like, I consider myself like a student of the universe. I just love soaking up information. Um, I tend to like things that are a little bit more, um, wondrous and like, you know, mystery and things like that, which, uh, which just always makes me want to dig more into things. And, you know, I have a degree in theater, but when I first graduated, I actually got offered a uh, position to be a social media person for a news publication. And I kind of started there, but I also wrote and everything. And I just, um, I just kept doing that. And then I, I wanted to kind of play into the fact that I really love storytelling as well to go hand in hand with the stories that we hear about the, the world and the universe. And, you know, that just kind of grew into uh, my love for uh, stories and um, movies and film and things like that. So my main thing, I guess my motto is to get people to think critically and feel deeply about things I enjoy. Um, and they hopefully enjoy too. So um, the 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 one I'm the most passionate about is the horror. But in general, it's usually storytelling, uh, which is why you know um, you know I focus a bit on film and uh, and television in general. And uh, I, I I I write when it comes towards that, and also when it comes to like hosting programs in relation to that, because I really do think that uh, the stories that we see in the media. Um, whether film, television, or even just the news really do influence the way our society is (laughs) and a little bit, probably more than we give it credit for sometimes. Um, and I want to be part of that conversation. So, uh, basically someone who's, who's just basically trying to put information out there for people, you know, what's funny is when I first started writing novels, my publisher said, yeah, you write horror, you got to seek out, you know, everybody in the horror community and start following them. You're one of the people I decided to follow. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And you were, you were gracious enough to, to give me a follow back. Right. So, um, yeah. and, and we've been following each other for a while and I finally had the thought to ask you to come on the show. And it, as a, as a female person of color, you're a bit of a unicorn in the horror space. 
I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> not a whole lot of Chauncey Robinsons. Now, I've I've seen the um, the horror noir uh, documentary, which is absolutely fantastic, which has a lot of uh, African American icons of horror, and you 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 almost don't think about it. How many African Americans are have worked in that genre for the last hundred years? But there's more than you think. And one of one of the feathers in my cap, one of the people that I follow on Twitter who follows me back is Tony Todd. Yes, he's amazing, isn't he? Though <laughs> he's amazing, and one of the things I love him. <laughs> and, and as we talk about how divisive horror has become the last few years, about oh, I like this, but I don't like this. How can you like that? It's trash. When when we have these conversations, I, I think about when the new Candyman came out. Mm, yeah. And all these folks came out and said, oh, the new Candyman is too woke. I'm like, did you see the original? <laughs> did right. you? Do you? You just don't. People just don't get it. Right. So mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about this because you're one of the people who feeds Rotten Tomatoes. Right. Your your reviews yes. go in there. <laughs> yeah. And you have two types of people. And, and I'm kind of one of one group where I don't care. I'll watch schlock horror. I grew up on Reanimator and Evil Dead and had the opportunity recently at LA Comic Con to, to work for Bruce Campbell for a day. Yeah, oh, awesome. Yeah, it was a great experience. Great guy, too. I uh, love him, too. Right? I've loved him since I watched him on Xena. That's okay. where I discovered him because I'm like, yeah. So I didn't know he was like on Evil Dead beforehand. I just knew him as the thief on Xena. And I was like, this guy is so great. And then I found out he was on Evil Dead. <laughs> like, I guess I'm showing my, my youth. I don't know. <laughs> and I saw him at the Castro in San Francisco give a talk and introduce Evil Dead 2. And yeah. and it was, a, it was a great thing. Um, so I'll watch schlock horror films. Now, I've gotten a little more picky the older I get just because time is so precious. I don't want to waste time on garbage. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I look at what you talk about and review and discuss on your YouTube channel. Um why do you think we've gotten to this point when it comes to horror films that there just seems to be this enormous breadth of opinion? But if you don't like somebody, people are quick or something, people are quick to jump on you. What is kind of the state of of reviewed films and who likes this and who likes that when it comes to the horror genre? What are you seeing? Well, I think um, it's interesting bringing up Candyman because I actually did like a whole thing on like woke horror and I kind of used the new Candyman as uh, or the latest Candyman installment sort of as a jumping off point because it's such a multifaceted situation, right? Like, I mean, you could I mean, you could go the very blunt route of saying, oh, this is just people who don't like talking about race and women and things like that. That's why this is such a, a thing. But it's I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, because one, I think what has changed the terrain um, specific, uh, very ha- has has such a huge impact is social media. Right. We didn't have this years ago. I mean, we we kind of now think of social media as all as always being here but there was a time it wasn't right you i mean message boards were a thing and everything but now you have such a thing where people immediately after they watch a movie they can just start giving an opinion and some people who haven't even watched the movie can give an opinion and and so on and so forth so that creates this sphere of conversation first and foremost where you didn't have that space before so what you have is maybe these people had their own opinions in their own household but now they get to exchange it and sometimes the loudest voices even if they're the smallest, still get a lot of attention. We saw this with Star Wars and and other situations. Um, But I think the other end of that is the fact that um, I think people 
people are a little defensive. You know, I think it's it's one of those things where our, not to get totally political, but our political divide is such a thing right now. And, and culture is not separate and apart from that. So what happens is people think, oh, this thing is trying to push this sort of propaganda on me, or this thing is starting to trying to push this propaganda. And so it's, it's, it's a little bit of, well, everything has propaganda in it because everything has a message, whether it's pushing a status quo or whether it's pushing something different. It's just we don't tend to think of something as propaganda usually until we disagree with it. Um, and I think if more of us were honest about that, uh, maybe there wouldn't be so much, oh, this is woke or this is uh, bias or, or something like that. But I also, I'll, I mean, and this is only because of the industry I'm in, um, I also kind of blame uh, journalists and media and sometimes critics for this too. Some, uh, some sections of that, because particularly when it came to horror, what you had going on, I remember when Jordan Pill came out with Get Out and stuff, you had a lot of people using this new terminolo- ter- terminology called... Um, elevated horror mm-hmm. and it was like what does that mean <laughs> you know and it was almost <laughs> no. kind of like it was almost kind of like these journalists or these critics or whatnot who may not be who may have kind of turned their nose up to horror in the past were suddenly kind of forced to write about it because you know this this other this horror was coming in mainstream and it's like of course they want to be on top of this topic but because they couldn't allow themselves to i don't know do a little research or just kind of acknowledge that horror has had a number of ones before that honestly if we're talking about criteria could have been considered what they consider elevated horror um then we wouldn't have that kind of conversation where it was kind of like well this is the elevated horror and this is the other kind of stuff because that can get divisive too sure but but with elevated horror right it's like saying speculative fiction isn't all fiction speculative yes exactly so it's kind of like why what and and so you had this in my opinion you had this kind of unnecessary divide right there which caused it which which caused its its own issues as well so i think it's kind of a nuanced thing but i think because of that we're having this ongoing conversation about woke and i and and sometimes people just use the term woke especially if they're using it in a negative way because they just don't want to see a movie with maybe someone they don't think should be a main character i mean that's that's just how some of these people are and you can't do anything about i mean that's just the way they are and that's their bias or racism or prejudice or whatever so but i think it's a bit more nuanced than that i'd agree with that and you know when you think about it and people want to jump in and always say well horror shouldn't be political i mean have you not been paying attention the last 200 years when it comes to to gothic fiction and and (laughs) and the rise of of the horror movie in the the early uh 1920s i always look at it this way chauncey horror reflects what we're afraid of as a society Mm-hmm. And when you go back to the 20s and 30s, like let's put gothic horror on the screen. Nobody's ever seen this, so we're afraid of the unknown. So let's put this on screen. In the 40s, there wasn't a whole lot of horror because of World War II, right? It was horrific enough. Then you get into the 50s. Now we're afraid of UFOs and commies. Mm-hmm. So all our horror reflected that. In the 1960s, it was a sexual revolution and that kind of thing. And for some reason, demonic horror, uh, you know, the, the satanic panic becomes a thing yes. into the 70s. And then 80s, it becomes the person next door. And this is what resonates today is the slasher, right? It could be anybody. Mm-hmm. This is why we don't send kids door to door to sell Girl Scout cookies anymore, because we're afraid of the guy next door in the hockey mask. And I think... K 
Candyman specifically addresses a whole bunch of things. It, it, it since we're we're kind of singling that one out uh, intentionally or unintentionally, that there's all kinds of things there. There's gentrification. There's racism. There's classism. There's all kinds of things. And the people who sit there and say, "Well, this is too woke," or "I'm not watching this," they're afraid to turn the lens on themselves. Yes. No, I agree with you. I, I, and I, th- I do think that's a part of it as well. It's a way of, um, like my honest opinion of Candyman, the newer one. I still think the original was better, uh, but I, I liked this one. I thought, I honestly, when people say, "Oh, this is too woke," I honestly thought to myself, "Well, actually, I thought the messaging was a little muddled, particularly when it came to gentrification. They touched on it, but it wasn't really dived into as much as you know, um, as I thought they would have." And and I was like, if anything, that should work for the people who would think it'd be too gold because they they only scratched the surface in this movie, to be honest, except for like the the final act and the final scene, which was like really on the nose. Um, and so, I mean, when it comes to Candyman or when it comes to there, there's so many, you know, different kind of movies where it's like. Um, even in the past, like they live. I remember I wrote an article um, on the anniversary of They Live about two years ago. Uh, John Carpenter's They Live. And Love that movie. So, Saw it in the yeah, theater my, when it came out. Yeah, one of my faves, and um, my favorite of John Carpenter is Mouth of Madness. But the, They Live is like a second one, and so um, I wrote it. And and one of the comments was from this guy, and he was saying, "Oh my gosh, why are you infusing politics into They Live?" It was about aliens. And I was just like, what? Yeah, somebody else who didn't get it. I was like, first of all, I was like, all you had to do, and I literally quoted it in the article, was John Carpenter's own interview, which was saying it was F. Reagan. That was one right. Of the right. It's, he it, was it's anti-capital. It's a, capitalism. It's all kinds yes. of yeah. There's and so I was many like, messages. Wait a minute. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. It was always there. Night of the Living Dead. George Romero. The ending with Ben getting shot. All of this. Mm-hmm. All of these things had messaging. Um, you know, there's so much in there. I mean, you know, even one of the ones that are not even as much overt, like Halloween, one could argue it was the question of uh, suburbia not being as safe because mm-hmm. you had the whole idea of white flight and, and people leaving the city for the suburbs for that safety. And then the idea of even you're not safe there either kind of a deal. That's a hell um, of a, a, a take because I've never heard that before. Oh, OK. That, well, no, that, I just well. <laughs> I mean, I always learn things on on the show when I have have great guests on, and and that's something I've never even thought of. But no, that's a that's a great perspective on that. That's t- that tends to be what I think of in the tradition of slashers. It tends to be, in my opinion, like this whole idea of you know the suburbia interrupted in certain places. Because I mean, just coming from the inner city, I, I was born and raised in North New Jersey, and uh, you know there was the riots in the 1960s that my mom went through and stuff like that. And you had a lot of people kind of like an exodus, a mass exodus to this safer community away from all this and that. And then. I mean, we even see it today that there's still crime and true crime stories. And a lot of them happen in a nice, quiet street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, with the quiet neighbor, nobody suspects. <laughs> with a quiet and... neighbor, no one expects. And he's a mass serial killer. So, was <laughs> yeah. it, well, you know, you left the city because you were afraid of the dark people. But <laughs> you still got to deal with it, right? It always so, kills me. I, it's, you know, me being, you know, this, this red-blooded 
American white male, it's like, yeah, sometimes white people, I don't know about you. I really don't. <laughs> right? got to look at them a little bit. Yeah, I got to look at my own folks and be like, you know, you ain't right. But but let's talk about another movie that's, uh, and I want to talk a little bit more about Jordan Peele in a minute, but I want to talk okay. about another movie in recent months that really, really caused uh, a firestorm online. And I'm on record as hating this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's Malignant. And oh. Yeah, I, I thought it was poorly done. Uh, the special effects were bad, bad acting. Um, I love a good science gone wrong story, and that's what I thought it was when it started. And then it becomes this this other thing. I didn't care for the movie, but I have never seen such feverish arguing about a movie, mm. right? Because there were two camps. You either loved this thing or you hated it. But nobody got along when it came to this film, it was, it was full blown arguing on social media about it. Hmm. What did you think well, of it? Okay. So I loved it <laughs> for, for a number of reasons. I, and I will say this, I loved it once I accepted it for what it was. I was very confused when it first started because of what the, some of the things you, you listed, like some of the, you know, there would be this melodramatic, uh, I was adopted. Like, that was one of the things I would say. And then this music would start. I was like, are we in an 80s cheese fest? Like, what is happening here? You know, just things like that were going on. Get out of my and- head, will you? Because that's what I was thinking, too. Uh, it's like Reanimator all over again. And that's one yeah. of my favorite films, right? So but, I'm thinking, oh, yeah. okay. But once I accepted the, the, the weird shifts and the crazy music that would come in at certain scenes, I was like, oh, I get what he's doing. I get it. I, I just felt like I got it. And I, I got it for not like, oh, I, I just, no one understood. But I, I just, I kind of, I more so I accepted it. I was like, once I accepted the style that he was doing, and I think a lot of people were expecting kind of the Conjuring, because this is, you know, Juan, he created the Conjuring universe. And there's a certain style to the Conjuring universe. And I think people went into it kind of expecting, I know I did, and anyway, I'll speak for myself. I went in there kind of expecting the Conjuring vibe or what I what we had gotten for the last couple of years and that was totally a 180 and I think on a variety of levels maybe he was trying a different style I feel like I I almost thought of it as a home uh, a homage to you know the cheese of the 80s some 80s movies occasionally especially the the scene where she's where the guy where the other part of her is literally killing all of the people in the police station mm-hmm. which was wild there was just so much going on there. And I think once I just settled into, okay, this is what he's doing, I came to love it. I loved it for what it was. So I just, and that's what I try to do when I do film crit- critiques. I kind of, um, you know, I take it from the sense of uh, one of my uh, inspirations, Roger Ebert, where, you know, he, he, lo- he, he would always say that he looks at it as a person looking at a film. Like, did I enjoy this? Not comparing this Oscar movie to this movie that's totally not trying to get an Oscar kind of a deal. And I take it for what that is. And I don't know. I just ended up having fun with it once I, once I, once I accepted the style that he was doing, because I'll admit the first 20 minutes, I was just like, I have no idea what's happening here. Like, I knew what was happening, but I was like, <laughs> why is he choosing to do it this way? A lot of people <laughs> like, thought it was a, you know. These choices? I was like, what are these choices with this camera, with these cuts? <laughs> right. A lot of people thought it was an homage to the Giallo style, right? The the, mm-hmm. the Mario Bava, the uh, uh, 
you know, that kind of thing, uh, the Suspiria type thing, right? And, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, Dario Argento. I love. Yeah, right, I right. I love Suspiria. Exactly. And, you know, I didn't, so you got it and I didn't. So, but you know what, Chauncey, it's okay. It's okay I didn't yes. get it and you got it. And, <laughs> and I think, I wish people, more people would, um, would figure that out and stop arguing about these things. I had to come to that realization and say, you know what? You like what you like. If you don't like it too bad, I'll move on to something else. And you know, uh, I'm not going to argue with you about it. it. It just, you know, and, and I've gotten to the point where I won't say anything anymore. I mean, it's perfectly okay to scroll on by. Oh yeah. I agree. I definitely, I pick my battles, I right. guess is my thing. And I also, I think because of the fact that as a Rotten Tomatoes critic, I can like, add to a score officially of a movie i think am i really going to try to argue on on twitter about it it's like i'll just put in my review and either you agree or you won't at that point but sometimes you know i'll um you know like i i didn't particularly care for halloween kills um which i had not seen yet so i I saw give you any spoilers i saw the one Um, before that in the theater the week that it came out and i kind of decided at that point i'm done with the franchise i can't okay Right. I, mean, I love Jamie Lee Curtis. Halloween is one of my my top three horror movies of all time. And I, I adore the film. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is one of the greatest scream queens of all time. And, and you mentioned John Carpenter. Um, but it's you get to a point. Are you adding anything new to the yes. narrative or, or to the canon? And you get to a point where it's no, you're not. And I can't. I got to walk away from you at that point. I want to talk to you about, um, first, you brought up Rotten Tomatoes, so we'll talk about Jordan Peele right after that. But I want to talk about Rotten Tomatoes for two seconds. When you review a film and you're about to put in that review that feeds that that tomato meter score, do you stop and think before you submit? Do you think, okay, am I giving this the right weight? What goes into your mind before you submit a review? You know, I am a Jersey girl, so I tend to be very much like, well, this is my opinion and that's that. Um, And I've learned to kind of be a little bit more kind of like, well, let's see if I'm, you know, I want to make sure I'm presenting an argument well enough. Because I think no matter what you say about something, back it up. You know, if someone disagrees with me, I don't mind that at all. I, I, I enjoy conversations as long as people can give. The thing, and I just make sure if I wrote, if I've, ri- especially if it's a written article, um, I make sure that I gave my reasoning for why I really either like something or didn't like something. Even with my videos, because I've gotten hate before sure. from certain for certain things I have put out there, um, and there are sometimes when. Let's say uh, I'll go to a a page and I'll see that my fellow Rotten Tomato uh, colleagues uh, have uh, maybe really given high marks to a movie. And I realize I'm about to submit like something that I gave it like a D and everyone's giving it an A. I I stop for one second to think, hmm. And I, you know, I might read someone else's after I've written mine just to see like what is their reasoning. But I usually just put it in because I'm just like, you know, this is this is my take. And I think um, one of the things I really give credit to to Rotten Tomatoes um, is they did a real push to diversify their official critics pool uh, because, you know, we still have a long way to go. But 
83%, um, last time I checked the, uh, the statistics, 83% of critics are white men. Mm. Um, and, you know, we talk about people who do film, getting people in front of the camera and getting people behind the camera who are diversity to help push out more, uh, you know, inclusive media. But I think it's just as important to uh, have a inclusive uh, critics pool as well, because if um, a movie comes out that maybe needs a little bit of a shine on it or whatever, um, and there's a certain pool of people that are a little bit more maybe monolithic about it, it can be buried, you know, like people still, I mean, I know some, there's some people who hate critics and they're like, I never read a critic thing, but there are plenty of people that do, which is why Rotten Tomatoes and media credit, Metacritic and all that do well, because there are people who really do before they pay their hard-earned money to go to a theater, read a review. Or even on streaming. I'll give you an example. When I was a Comcast customer, when you would go look at Comcast On Demand, you could look at the Rotten Tomatoes uh, tomato meter critic score and the, um, the, the user score right there before you chose the film. Yeah. So, so while you're browsing titles and you're looking at cover art, you're like, oh, it, it got a terrible Rotten Tomato score, but uh, the fans loved it. So maybe I'll give it a shot, yeah. right? So and, many, that's, and that's really great that that's there, too. Yeah. And I don't have that anymore, and I wish I did. But uh, you're listening to the Get the Deck podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I'm joined by special guest actress, horror maven, social media sensation, all kinds of things. Uh, but she's a horror fanatic, and her name is Chauncey K. Robinson, and she's a Jersey girl. Uh, here on the here on the program, uh, let's let's talk about this a little bit. I don't, you know, me being a, the pasty white guy, I don't want to go, you know, show any any privilege here or anything. But you brought up something really interesting, just kind of on the edge of talking about somebody like Jordan Peele. You talk about having more diversity in the in the critics group, which I think is fantastic, because oftentimes you see in journalism. And I think you can appreciate and attest to this. You, you've got the the wrong person telling the story that has mm. no earthly idea uh, the person's story or journey uh, because the, the subject matter is people of color and the person telling the story is not, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think there's enough representation in journalism. And however, you look at both sides of this argument and we can talk about Jordan Peele as part of this argument. A lot of people think Jordan Peele, here's a, here's a black guy working in horror. We're going to like everything he does. Because he's black. I don't subscribe to that. As much as I like Jordan Peele and I like the idea of Jordan Peele and what he's trying to do, not everything he put out puts out there is good. And at the same time, when you look at the Academy Awards, right, you the, the things we've seen in the last few years about representation, my whole thing is let's nominate things that are good. Let's not just nominate things because there's lack of representation. However... My third element to that is the problem with the lack of representation is because people don't think to include people. And I've seen that in professional sports in in uh, positions of leadership, coaching, general manager, general managers, things of that nature. People don't think to even interview a person of color. So there's a I think there's a 360 degree view of this topic that has arguments coming at it from all sides. What is your take on this? 
um, yeah, I agree with you that there's, it's, once again, it take, it's nuance. It's not just simply cut and dry when it comes to uh, the situation of that. One, I do agree that we need more inclusivity, more diversity when it comes to the people who are part of this industry, whether in all types of parts. Um, the issue with Jordan Pill, I love Get Out, right? I really enjoyed Get Out. I didn't really like Us that much. I Same. actually had some issues with Us. Same. I thought it had a lot of plot holes and I thought, you know, I have an issue when people build up a universe and then break their own rules just to get the plot going and I felt like that. <laughs> there was a few things I had issues with it. Sure. So, and that was me as a, as a person who watches movies, right? Um, the issue with that is you know, he's allowed, he should be allowed to make movies that aren't great. You know, the problem is a lot of time because of, like you said, the lack of the uh, a good number of people of color or, or in this case, African-American, um, is that a lot of the pressure gets put on the few to deliver, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. And it's, it's really interesting how that works, though, because you'll have, um, let's say, a white director or a white creator who you know they'll get a whole bunch of movies or chances to make movies and you know you remember the ones you like it's not oh this one movie didn't do well have they lost their luster i mean they did that with right. m night Shyamalan, right uh you know he I, one of one of m night Shyamalan ones that i love is signs and then he did something that people didn't like and then suddenly it was a question of well, I don't know. Is he still good? And it's like, yeah. how about all these other white directors or white writers who get to make a whole bunch of movies that don't do well? Or let's say, for example, um, there are statistics that show that um, movies that have a diverse cast do better, actually, statistically, than movies that don't. Like, that is stats but you would never know that by the way hollywood puts out films and yet <laughs> you know because people all people like to see different types of people on screen it just it adds some spice or whatever right yeah you wouldn't know that sometimes and so it's this idea that you know I'll just say black people don't get to make silly movies sometimes, you know, it's, it's one of these things, even with horror films. And I always get annoyed about this. Unless your name like, is Wayans. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but if, I mean, but they built an empire. I mean, they, you know, it took yeah. years to get to that. Right. Sure. But it's like the idea of, if you come out, there's kind of this thing with Hollywood where it's like, okay, you're a black creator. Uh, if you're making a horror movie, we got to make this about race. You know, and it's like, mm -hmm. why can't they just make a slasher? <laughs> you know, it's like, who are you making these films for that? It always has to be a just racial make a good movie. Kind of make a why aren't, why aren't they allowed to make a good movie right. and it puts it puts i think black creators and creators of color sort of in this box that uh that people who are you know not of color don't nece don't necessarily have that kind of box and they're also allowed to fail more you know let a movie come out that has a black lead get uh not do well and then suddenly you see and this goes back to journalism and media you see a whole bunch of headlines of are people not ready for a black lead on da 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 da, da? and it's like another show <laughs> with a white lead will get canceled and you never see <laughs> some title of are people getting tired of white men dominating <laughs> being the lead of comedy show no one says that no one right. presents it that way it's only presented when it comes to people of color usually a lot of times and i think 
when you have that kind of really narrow view of, of not just allowing people to do their art, you'll get that. And then you also get pressure on people like Jordan Pill to constantly produce so-called masterpieces. Mm-hmm. And it's like he should be allowed to not have a masterpiece. He could, should be allowed to just have a decent, fun movie because it's his job, you know? Um, but that's not always given the case. Right. Um, and then the other sign of this is the internal um, thing within the community. I remember when the, the series Them came out, which oh. was a total play on us. Uh, and it was but I liked it. I enjoyed it. I thought that was horrible. That Did you was, really? To me, I, I absolutely loathed it. And so did a lot of other black people who watched it. They, we, a lot of people felt like it was torture. Interesting. Porn, particularly in, in the way that the brutality and the violence was happening towards the black family and what was happening to them. It was just an onslaught of pain and suffering. Many of us felt this. I put that out there and it got such a, um, I, I put it out in a YouTube video my review and it got such a it was such an interesting polarizing um discussion because you had a lot of people admitting i agree i watched it up to episode four then i turned it off because i just couldn't stomach it anymore why do we have to get subjected to this who who is this entertaining at this point watching black bodies get suffered but then you had the other end of that telling me i was a sellout because i should always praise uh films and television to have a black cast Mm. i was told that i was part of the problem for not praising this and i said i was like i'll praise when praise is due if i don't like it i don't like it (laughs) you know what i mean right and 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 i get that i should be allowed to have that space to say that but there is this pressure too I mean, I've even, I'll admit, and I've had other colleagues who tell me, you know, I've avoided certain movies and stuff that I know I can already, people aren't going to be very good, but because they have a, like, maybe a predominantly black cast or something, I avoid reviewing it because I don't want to give it a bad review because I know it could be used against them for later. So I choose not to review it at all because I know that there's a lot more pressure on this black film, you sure. know? I think the only person who gets a free pass here is Tyler Perry. Mm. He's the only person of color, the only filmmaker of color who's allowed to make that dud. Right. And I don't, I don't know how he built his empire. I don't know what made his money, but you know, I give him credit for what he did has done through, through what we are now calling the COVID era. Right. He's done a lot of, a lot of good things with his, uh, his community in, in uh, Georgia and you know where they make the films and that kind of thing but it seems like to me Tyler Perry's that one guy who you know no matter what he does he kind of falls up right yeah i think there's also i mean this also is once again within the community where you have some people who think what he does is buffoonery uh, you have some people who feel that particularly they think it's one of these things where they're like he's making black men look emasculated da 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 and then you have other people being like why does his one movie have to represent all of black people that's the issue when we don't have more voices we have to put so much emphasis on the few that we have the key is to give more voices so one or two or four people don't rep- so called represent a whole race Right. <laughs> you know, right. So. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So um we've uh 
probably spent more on that topic than I intended to, but no, it's it's great conversation, great discussion. And I think, you know, some of the things you talk about are, are really, really important when we look at this, you know, genre, especially, you know, what I got out of that, that series was, you know, I really sympathized and empathized with the, the people of color in that. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, watching what happened to them and every time the, the white people tried to drive them out of the neighborhood and all the things they were doing, I was really rooting for the people of color. And, you know, and I thought it was representational, though exaggerated, maybe not, of, of things that did happen uh, when when uh, people of color tried to move into neighborhoods like that in the 50s. And, uh, you know, it was just, you know, it was gut wrenching to watch. Uh, but I found the series overall entertaining. One of the series that was out around the same time that this one I struggle with is Lovecraft Country. And I am a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan, and he's one of the few people on earth I can separate the artist and the art. I know his backstory. I know his background. I know his his xenophobia and his racism and that kind of thing. But I was really interested to see this take on it. Um Especially with Courtney B. Vance in in the in the series, unfortunately they they wrote him out like two episodes in. Um, but uh, Lovecraft Country got a lot of uh, Emmy nominations, but it was canceled. And my thought was, okay, just because it was Emmy nominated doesn't mean it was good. And I just thought I liked the idea of it, but it was all over the place. And I just, I couldn't follow the through line. I couldn't follow the story. I I have a real problem with non-linear storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this thing was, you know, it's okay to have that one-off episode that that goes down a tributary, kind of like the way Fargo does. Um, When you focus on one or two characters for an entire episode rather than the whole picture or the whole story arc i just thought lovecraft country was all over the place and a lot of people were upset it was canceled i thought you know it could have been done really really well i loved the idea of turning lovecraft's racism on his head with that uh that whole idea what did you watch lovecraft country and what was your thoughts on it if you did yeah i watched it uh I started watching it um, in the beginning. Uh, I got halfway through. Then I kind of fell out of it. I have a tendency sometimes if a TV show doesn't keep me engaged that I tend to not return to it. Um, Or I want to return to it or I don't get back to it. So this was one of those for me. I thought it started off really strong. Like you said, Mm -hmm. Courtney B. Vance, he was really great. Um, I was kind of upset when his character got got killed off. Um, And I... I thought it started off really strong. I had some issues with what I thought was a little bit of colorism going on um, with some of the characters, uh, particularly the way some of the darker skin characters were being treated uh, mm. uh, that I didn't particularly care for. And uh, yeah, I, I agree with you that after a bit, it kind of did start to wander, I felt like. Um, but I mean... Honestly, I, I like the lore. I like the idea and the lore. But mm-hmm. in terms of the show, I, I do think that it wasn't as strong as it could have been. Yeah, it was all in the execution, right? Because there were some good characters. And there were some good storylines. And they the ones they chose to explore were, were the ones we probably shouldn't have and didn't explore enough of the uh, the, the storylines we should have. Uh, I want my own trained Shogoth to uh, attack people when I'm threatened. So that was, right. you know, <laughs> it was great to see some of these Lovecraftian monsters 
actually visualized on screen, right? I mean, there was some amazing, even in dream sequences, there were some really, really cool uh, monsters and visuals that we got to see that we've never seen before. So let's just talk about the horror genre as a whole, Chauncey. Let's do that for a little mm -hmm. while. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a vampire person, right? This is my favorite monster. Uh, you know, I love universal horror uh, from 1925 to 1956 with, you know, the Wolfman and Frankenstein, the mummy, all of these iconic characters. And one of the things that I've been trying to explore in the last few months to years is what's the next monster. So I'm going to ask you a two-part thing. I want to know what your favorite monster is. And then I kind of want to know where you think the, the thing is going, where I think it's going is more of the folklore, more of the older, uh, you know, the ritual was a fantastic movie that talks about the, the elder gods and, and more of the uh, kind of village folklore. And I've been reading a lot of Stephen Graham Jones, right? Um, my heart is a chainsaw and, uh, the only good Indians, uh, fantastic books. And I got to read more of his stuff. I read, um, I read cunning folk by the same person who uh, did the ritual. Um, and I watched antlers and I got to say, I was disappointed in antlers. I love the idea. I love the concept. Uh, Stephen King has touched on the Wendigo a little bit, uh, especially in pet cemetery. But, you know, I, I think where we're going is either native American folklore or, or the, you know, that folklore that, that predates Christ, that goes, be you know, before monotheistic religion as we know it today. And I think I think where we're going is more that Wendigo-type monster, um, deep-rooted in, in local and village folklore, uh, as opposed to your traditional monsters, right? I mean, yeah, we're still going to tell Dracula stories. We're going to still tell vampire stories. Uh, the occasional good werewolf movie will come out every now and again. There's always going to be science gone wrong uh, in good science fiction horror. But I think I think as far as the monster of today, we've, we've transcended the slasher and we're, we're going into, we're going back deeper and darker into the woods. Um, I agree with that. Um, I, I tend to like biblical horror, uh, or occult horror, um, which I guess it's connected to the, to folklore and stuff. Cause everyone has different beliefs. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to like that, um, uh, a bit more. Cause I just think one, it touches closer to home for many people because of faith and things like that. And I, I like stuff. St I like a uh, horror that's story and history rich. So when you have the biblical or you have the folklore, it's really entrenched in like long-term traditions in various ways. So that's kind of my jam. Um, I like that. And I think it helps us like reflect on faith and things like that and what it means and, and whatnot. So I always find that to be kind of my fave type of uh, movies. Uh, in terms of like the, the trajectory of the horror uh, genre, I mean, it's interesting because I do think, I, I agree with you because I do think for many people, there's just something very interesting about that. I think it comes from the fact of, you know, we live in a time when 
because of online communities, because of social media, we're just exposed to so much. There's so much, so much out there. It can be quite overwhelming. And also to the point, it can be desensitizing where I feel like some people get to the point where they've seen it all before. They've seen the heart, they've seen a vampire, they've seen a werewolf, they've seen this and that. So when you are touching on folklore, even some like scrolls of the Bible, no one's touched on before and things like that. Um, it just leaves a space where people are like, wow, I've actually never experienced this before. This is new to me. And I think people are looking for that next rush. So I agree that that's definitely a trajectory. I mean, I am also of the thought that every story has been told before to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. But I think that by using the folklore, by using the religions and things like that, that are steeped in such history that, you know, everyone's not attuned to it really does open up kind of a new a new uh way to explore those horror elements you know what john so you it's almost as if you dance around inside my head and (laughs) you you just say it you you articulate it differently than i would but one of the things that that you you mentioned there is is faith, right? And I think mm-hmm. one of the the things that we're starting to see a little bit more of, and what's kind of funny, if you go back to the origin of horror films in the 20s, this is kind of where it almost started, and it's starting to really come back around now, is Jewish horror, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it started with the golem, and now we're, there's, there's a new film coming out. I wish I knew the name of it, uh, but there's a new Jewish horror film coming out, and I have a friend of mine, uh, an author, Mark London Williams, he's working kind of like on a almost like an old timey radio drama, uh, and he and he's in in the script writing phase, uh, talking about Jewish folklore in horror, and and he's doing a dramatization. It, I really think that that's another branch we could see is is some of these these older religions. We may be familiar with them, but. Uh, these older religions, kind of like Jet Li did with Chinese folklore, right? With all the epic films that they were doing uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago. That stories that have never been told before, and I agree with you as a writer, uh, every story has been told, but my argument is, but not by me. Exactly. Right. What makes it different is the person telling it. Right. But I think we're, we're going to see some of these uh, untapped uh, like Korea is doing a fantastic job, uh, Korean filmmakers, of telling some of these older folklore stories in the horror genre. Oh, yeah, uh, I agree. Right? Uh, Bull Gasol is, is one that comes to mind that, that I've been watching. Another one, uh, uh, Hellbound was another one. Uh, and I think, um, you know, coming out of Southeast Asia, there's some stories uh, that have never been told before that, that Western audiences uh, are really starting to appreciate. So... Um, I think I think that folklore thing, and especially uh, go go a little deeper into that because I think I think that was a lot of the origins of gothic horror, right? There was there was those religious tropes and, and issues, you know. A lot of vampire stories are um, metaphors for forbidden sex, forbidden relationships, right? Uh, homosexuality and and those kinds of things. So go a little deeper into your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I just actually recently a published article of mine was about the 100-year anniversary of Nosferatu. 
Um, and it came out this, you know, month in 1922. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, dug into the, the themes of it, right? The, the question of homoeroticism, um, the question of wom- a woman's autonomy with the question of Aline and how it actually differs from Bram Stoker's one in terms of certain, you know, uh, choices that get made. And, and who is the monster of, of Olark and, and what does he represent? Is it, you know, anti-Semitism or is it more of a commentary on anti-Semitism because of the fact that it came out in between World War One and World War Two and the rise of, you know, Hitler's Nazi uh, regime. And um, I, you know, it's, it's one of these things of history. I mean, sorry, history, uh, horror is at times to me, one of the reasons why I love it, such a great reflection of our own, of our society and, and what's going on inside of us. And I think with everything that's happened, if you look at the tumultuous times we've had in the last two years, that um, people are trying to make sense of it. You know, we're uncertain about our future and we're kind of weird about our present. And I think what horror has the ability to do is kind of allow people to kind of find something within the past. And I think that's why you're getting people wanting to get back to the roots of things. That's why you have this folklore kind of emerging. You have people wanting to dive into what made us people, what made us believe, what makes us have certain kind of beliefs and faiths. Where, what is all, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how did we get to this division that we're at now? Why are, why are we here in this position? And I think what you have with a lot of horror artists is kind of wanting to um, explore that in that way. Um, I mean, you can do it with the regular monsters, but there is something with um, exploring it and more in, 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 bringing different stories about that haven't been told necessarily in that way yet. And I think it's a great mechanism for that. So um, I'm excited, you know, about, you know, that Um, I was just looking at like certain like um, book agencies, like book agents or whatnot. And some of the things they were saying is that they don't want, you know, certain there was more than one who was just saying, I don't want anything of Western type thing. I want some folklore from other cultures. If you've got something like that when it comes to horror or storytelling, let me have it, you know? So I think they also see that trend too, that people are looking for something a bit different because maybe the the um, questions they're asking aren't being answered by what they've already come to know. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, I learned in, in writing books was, you know, if you can't find a story you like to read, write one. Yes. Right. So there, there's a lot of, I think there's still a lot of originality, um, you know, untapped originality out there. And whenever I see a remake or, uh, you know, something uh, rebooted, I always think, you know what? Go to Barnes and Noble and pick something off the shelf and turn that into a movie. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's tons of tons of stuff. And as much as I'd like to see my own stuff adapted, it's like, you know, there's so much out there. But then you see something like I'm thinking of ending things by Ian Reed turned into a really, really bad movie with Jesse Plemons. Um, I wanted to talk to you about something, a common interest of ours, and that's Preacher. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Back in the late 90s, uh, I read a lot of collected editions of, of the Preacher uh, comic book, almost 
you know, in graphic novel form. And for years you heard, oh, they're going to make Preacher into a movie. They're going to make it into this. They're going to make it into that. And nothing ever happened. And then the folks at AMC who had great success and continue to have success, which I don't quite understand, with <laughs> with, with The Walking Dead, yes. right? I mean, when soccer moms start watching the zombie show, it's time to stop watching the zombie show. Uh, that's, that's my thought. We, we've, we've transcended the audience. I don't quite know how that works. But, but Preacher with Dominic Cooper, uh, it was, had a lot of great things. Ruth, Ruth Nega was fantastic in the show. Uh, a lot of, a lot of great, uh, performances. The last season of it went really off the rails. Um, but you know, those of us who were fans of the comic book really, re- really like to see the preacher uh, who had the voice of God brought to life in Dominic Cooper. And I thought he was perfectly cast. You uh, were a co-host on the Preacher After Show as there is a, a Talking Dead. There was a uh, after show with uh, with Preacher. Uh, what was your experience like uh, being a part of the after show? And, and what did you think of the series Preacher as a whole? Um, well, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's one of the things when you like a when you like a TV show or like uh, with TV shows, you get to sit with the characters a bit longer. You get to kind of follow the story, and you know that's what you get to do with an after show. And you know, I love doing after shows, particularly when I was at you know AfterBuzz TV. Um, I did a number of after shows, Preacher being one of them, and um, I I I really enjoyed kind of digging into because once again preacher talking about God and things like that that's my jam you know I love talking biblical stuff and biblical horror and the questions of what it means and also the play on um, angels and and the devil and hell and what mm-hmm. is it really about and so I loved that the show kind of took that and um and and knowing some of the things that happened in the comics um kind of being like okay how are they going to translate this mm-hmm. on screen like how is this going to work and and you know oftentimes really enjoying um how they were able to do that so it was it was a real blast uh doing um that season of the after show for the uh for the series and i love ruth um she's just amazing i love her and uh i'll watch anything that ruth is in so um i really just i mean and also her you know because knowing that i think canon wise the character um was i believe white and then they cast ruth and it was like and she just kind of brought her her charisma to that part um, I really love that because I'm all about, you know, as we mentioned earlier, being a woman of color in horror, particularly a black woman, kind of a unicorn. It was great to see a genre series with a main female character of color as well. So, um, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. I like a show that looks like they're having fun with the material. And that was definitely the case with Preacher. I'd agree with that. <laughs> and it didn't take itself too seriously either. And I yeah, love exactly. I, and one of my favorite characters from the comic, which was translated great in the series was Cassidy, the Irish vampire. Oh yes. <laughs> he was, he was fantastic. And, and it just, you know, I thought, you know, when you read the comic book and you hear about an adaptation in the works, you're like, all right, how are they going to do this? And when they finally did it, you weren't disappointed, right? Even if they went off the comic book, even if they didn't stick to canon, it was still fun and entertaining and on brand. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that, that no, was... I agree with that. 
right? I mean, and and yeah, you could tell the cast really they bought into the material, they bought into like the um, kind of the ludicrousness of it, if that's even a word, right? So, um, so yeah, it was uh, it was one of those series that you're like, oh my gosh, finally they're doing this. Um, so along those same lines, right? When it comes to horror, right? So I'm a huge Stephen King fan, and you know, you look at a lot of his stuff. It was kind of funny. Somebody in the Stephen King group I belong to on Facebook was like, how come they've never done a Stephen King multiverse like they did with the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I'm like, have you not been paying attention for the last 50 years? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's happened organically, right? And mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. only difference is the same actors not playing the same character in the same kind of little mini universe like the Castle Rock stuff, right? You have different Sheriff Pangborns. Even though Michael Rooker was... Uh, was one of the the sheriff pangborns in in uh, needful things or no excuse me the dark half uh was um uh, ed harris in in needful things uh but i'm a huge stephen king fan and what i'm finding is some of his stuff is doing better as series and i wanted to ask you especially with like preacher right because there's no way you could have taken that comic book and turned it into a two-hour movie there's no way on, yeah. on on earth you could have done that but you look at some of the stephen king stuff and I know they remade The Stand and it got mixed reviews and that kind of thing. Some of his stuff is even better serialized and even taking a nugget like the prequel to Salem's Lot and turning it into a series like Chapel Weight. What do you think of, of horror stories, especially from established books and, and short stories and that kind of thing, turned into serialized television? Is serialized television is much different, uh, well, television, than what I grew up on. Everything was solved in an hour. Right. Yeah. You watch like shows like Barnaby Jones and and the mystery solved in an hour, uh, you know, stuff like that. But now you're able to take things. And, and another reason I mention this is because a haunting of Hill House. And I saw the quote from Shirley Jackson on your on your Web page, which further tells me that we're kindred spirits that, you know, you you can do serialized television in a way that's cinematic and it builds builds suspense in even up until the end of that episode i'm watching from on on epics right now oh i love that show isn't that great um yeah it's really great yeah where is your head when it comes to taking especially you know some really thick material like a stephen king would produce and turning it into serialized television oh i'm all for it i um i think TV in comparison to film has pros and cons, right? They both have their pros and they both have, they both have places where they're stronger and weaker. And I think with television, serialized horror stories, I think you get a chance to really um, dig a little bit longer into characters, right? You know, a lot of horror movies are a little bit more, they lean more on the situational. It's, it's like, okay, here's a the situation. These people are part of it and, you know, they've got to deal with this. And sometimes, and a, lo- a lot of time what I feel when it comes to serialized horror is it's more like here's these people (laughs) you know and now here's also this unraveling of what's happening around them and it's you get a little bit more time to marinate with those people and that Mm. can be really great because 
when the, it means when things happen to them, it can hold a little bit more of an oomph because you've gotten a chance to know this character or you've gotten a chance to really sit with this character or understand certain things or grow with them or see their growth or their um, their growth to insanity or wherever they end up going. So I think it can be really strong. The issue that can happen is, um, and I've seen it sometimes with different series, is depending on the kind of horror it is uh, and the audience that it's trying to have. Like if the audience is like, um, you know, this idea of I want action all the time, I want people to get killed all the time and you need to slow it down a little bit to build the atmosphere, that might turn some people off, you know. But I, but then if you have a, a one that's all action, it's like, okay, where are we going with this kind of a deal? So there's ones that work. And I think it's about trying to find the balance of how long do you make this serialized situation? And what do you do in each episode? Are you making it a serialized show because you have a lot to say or because you just want to lengthen it out? You know, and I, you know, that was one of my issues. Um, I did a live, um, I did uh, a review show for, um, the newsstand that came out on uh, the CBS all back when it was CBS all access before it became Paramount plus. Mm -hmm. And um, I really love the original uh, TV series for it. Uh, we, we have it on DVD and I absolutely love it. And I, we just had a lot of issues with the new one because it felt like a lot of stuff was filler. And as, as long as the series was, I felt like I didn't know these characters as well. I didn't know what they were going with for it in, in that version. But then, um, you know, you have other adaptations where I know it's polarizing to say I liked the the Shining TV uh, limited series that came out. Right. Mm. I didn't care for the one with Jack Nicholson. Um, and, you know, people think the total opposite of that. But I, you know, and knowing the book and stuff, I felt like the TV adaptation um, had a little bit more time to dive into certain things while I felt like uh, Kubrick's one kind of gutted what was at the heart of, of the book. So um, I think particularly like with Stephen King and stuff, you have a chance to kind of really dive into his characters because he's a wordy guy, you know? So well, the you know, word marinate you used a minute ago, really, <laughs> I, I'm sitting here like nodding my head. Like, yeah, that's, it's a great word. I'll give you an example. Um, the, the novel it, right? Yes. So I saw the 1990 miniseries back when it came out. One of my faves. Right? <laughs> right. And I love Tim Curry and anything he's in. Yes. And, and it was one of those things where I hadn't read the book. And when It Chapter One came out, I watched that before I read the book. And I, I, I loved the casting in that. It was it was pitch perfect. And, you know, being an, a 70s and 80s kid, you know, I graduated high school in 87. So I'm, I'm this, you know, the, the whole 80s vibe, especially at that time, was, was so popular with Stranger Things and everything else that, you know, it really resonated with me. And I thought, yeah, this is this is good. They're doing the right thing here. And then I read the book in between that movie coming out and Chapter 2 coming out. And both the 90 miniseries and chapter two, two things. One, it really, neither one does the adults story justice. Mm -hmm. It always goes back to the kids. And I know it's compelling. And, and, and those kids were well cast in, in these, in these movies and both of them, but there was just so much in chapter two that was just so off the book, 
off of the, my mind was filling in gaps while I was watching the movie mm-hmm. and, and made me probably like it more than I should have. Um, but there were some bad casting choices in chapter two. Uh, and I was, you know, I was like really disappointed. I mean, Bill Hader was fantastic as the adult Richie Tozer yes. and, and James mm-hmm. Ransom actually turns in his great performance as the adult Eddie Kasprak. Uh, but you know, when I read the book and finished it, it really affected me. And chapter two's waste of Eddie Bowers blew my mind mm-hmm. because in the, in chapter one, he's, it, it was fantastic. And in the book, he's almost worse than Pennywise. And, and yeah. it, it was just really, really interesting to see how it went from chapter one to chapter two and kind of lost sight of the point of the book. Because the whole point of the book is unresolved childhood trauma. And and they totally lose that element, both in the 90 miniseries and this one. Yeah, I um well I do I prefer the the '90s miniseries. That's my jam. Sure, uh, that's I'm, the one I love. Um, and I adore it I too. Can, like sit and, and watch it a lot. Um, I liked part one for the most part. I I did say one of my when, with my review of part one. I I did felt feel like they leaned a little bit too much on the Goonies style mm. than what I was expecting. I was like, uh, I feel like this is more of a Goonies movie than it chapter one. Um, but I also, like you said, I got the whole thing of the Stranger Things, the 80s stuff is in right now. I mean, you even had a kid from the Stranger Things on it. Right. Uh, and I was a little tired of seeing I, I'll admit my I'm bias. a little tired, tired of Finn Wolfhard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not him, but I was tired that they, at this point they were casting the Stranger Things kids in like everything. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then what was happening they were getting so much dialogue and it was just like wait a minute he's not the only kid here i get he's famous but you know um and i thought it was okay i just felt like it was more goonies i didn't fear it as much um and then part two i didn't like at all um i just felt like it was i had i felt and i agree with you i felt no connection to the adult characters as much except like Bill Hader's uh, character and whatnot. And it just felt like as for as long as it was, I can't remember most of it at this point because it just felt like it just went on, you know? And I felt Um, more connected in the nineties miniseries to the adult characters and maybe only because they were well-known sitcom actors probably right you had john ritter you had harry anderson you had tim reed one of the things i didn't like about chapter two was they made mike into this raving lunatic right and i like mustafa he's you know he's an ex-football player he actually played for a couple teams including the the raiders and and i i just was like why is he this raving lunatic? He's the guy who kept everything together while they were all gone. He's the one who figured it all out. Yeah, I liked his characterization way better in the 90s. Yeah, I liked him. He was more level-headed. Yep. Uh, and, um, and I agree with that. I actually had some issues also with the way they kind of switched around what the kids did because, you know, he was originally, well, at least in the 90s when he was the one who was supposed to have the like pictures and be yeah. into the history. And right. they switched that for some reason. And, uh, the newer one. And I was like, why did they switch it? Cause now it doesn't make much sense that he stayed behind. Right. <laughs> why, why would he be the one to, to, to be the caretaker of the information? Yeah. Right. Shouldn't it be the other people? Shouldn't it be the other guy now? Why'd you do that? You know, it was kind of weird that they switched. Just certain choices didn't make much sense to me. I would agree with that. And let, let's, let's dive into the, the racism part of this 
right? Because if you go back and read the book, which the kids portion takes place in the late 1950s, Eddie Bauer's yes. father is a racist asshole. Yes. And, and I thought that a lot of the racist elements from the book were toned down. There's no explanation of the black spot. Uh, in any of the film adaptations of this, which is, you know, Mike's uh, Mike's family history is really downplayed and, it, and it's changed into this this kind of this other thing in, in the newer movie. Um, I wonder why that is. I wonder why they, they chose to do it that way, because there's so much more to Mike than we learn in either of the film adaptations. No, I agree with you. Um, well, I feel like in the 90s version, maybe because it was the 90s, it was a TV movie. You yeah. know, that might have been the whole thing with censorship. Um, I feel like when it came to the newer one, um, I I do think there may might have been a little bias there. I mean, I feel like they wanted to emphasize certain other characters. And so, which is why Mike's, you know, thing with the history being someone who's really into history was kind of taken from him and given to the other characters mm. for some reason, yeah. you know, and, and yet they let him keep to be the crackpot who stays back. You know, it was just like, okay, but why didn't you just switch both of them then if that was the case? Um, so I think, I think it played in, I think, well, one, I think the part one, they were leaning more on the Goonies thing. That's my honest. I think they wanted to make this appeal to maybe the people who watch Stranger Things and stuff. And so in that sense, they tried to make it a little bit more lighthearted, like when they threw in the whole thing about new kids on the block mm. and all of that. Fair. Um, <laughs> you know? Fair. So I think they didn't want someone, you know, having flashbacks of being called the N-word being up in there and yeah. stuff. So um, I think I think the marketing kind of played played a role in that so Chauncey, which is unfortunate because I, it takes away from you know i agree <laughs> i know you're right so uh can we both agree that stephen king was bullied as a child yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty you, sure you look at everything he's ever done and you're like eh, we, we were bullied as a child we're yeah. here yeah um so we talk a lot about movies and and television shows and that kind of thing are you much of a reader I am. I honestly, you know, I read more nonfiction than I do fiction. Okay. Because I am just more into like history books and stuff like that. I'll admit that. You um, read any true crime? Um, no, not true crime necessarily. I read stuff about like the occult. And okay. uh, there was this one book, uh, I even forgot the topic of it. Uh, well, the name of it, it was about, it took on serial killers, but from mm. a occult perspective. Um. I thought that was kind of fascinating. Things like that. I tend to. Um, I sometimes feel weird reading fiction only because, well, I read the the old school, like older, like I love Edgar Allan Poe. Mm, I have all yeah. his works. I have a whole complete book of his works. And As do I. I have, so I have, I have The Stand, I have Stephen King and stuff. Um, but some of the newer ones, I think because I write fiction occasionally and I did complete a book. Oh, and I, I always feel weird because I'm always worried I might think oh man i had that idea and now i just read this person's thing and i can't you know but that's just my own personal thing <laughs> right. it's funny i did read your treatise on on nosferatu and i did find it fascinating um it, you know it, the, it is the 100th anniversary of that and i'm always celebrating things like world dracula day and things of that nature i think dracula is the greatest literary villain ever created uh, and if you read the first third of that book where Jonathan Harker is in Castle Dracula and he's trapped and it, it's some of the most chilling stuff ever put to paper. And then there's parts of that book that put you to sleep. 
as much <laughs> as I love I love the book and its influence on on you know the horror genre and vampires in particular. But um, what are you working on now? I know I'm sitting here staring at your your YouTube channel and, and watch some of your videos. Um, what what? <sighs> Kevin, we touched on this at the the top of the show, right? Because it seems like you have uh, your fingers in a lot of pies, right? Yeah. Doing a lot of different things. So I always marvel at folks, right? Because I I do have like a a nine to five day job. Um, But, you know, when I write, it's a hobby. When I write books or or blog or, you know, my podcast is a hobby. Um, what, uh, What are you working on? What's going on? What's happening with Chauncey K. Robinson? Well, um, well, I'm still I'm I'm still working um, as a full time film and TV critic. So uh, I'm leaning more on trying to write more history based, uh, you know, kind of looking at older movies and kind of revisiting them and diving more into it. Oh, you got to um, hit me kinda- up for that. Because I'm more than happy to help you with that one. Oh, I, yeah. I'd love that. Yeah, yeah. I've written extensively yeah. on the Universal Horror Universe. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah, I think it's the first cinematic universe ever created. You might, yeah, I think you'd be right. And it was unintentional. They didn't they didn't like set out <laughs> to do it. They just So I have to forward you some links to my blog. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I love that. I'd love that. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing that more um, because I've just... Uh, really just love doing that and it's and building up my writing um in terms of that kind of uh diving into um i uh i think of like uh some of my inspirations like uh fran lebowitz and uh and like roger ebert and stuff and i think where are those people you know at this point like i feel like online has kind of made it so that everyone is kind of a critic sort of a thing like they say but like Mm. you know i i kind of look at film criticism and film history and theory and stuff as i feel like it can be an art form you know Mm -hmm. yeah as there are people who review and like they say i like this this was a cool scene so and so was like that but i think when it's really done well it's its own kind of art form and that's what i strive for uh to kind of be like you know for people to read my stuff and be like they'd read that on their own you know like wow that was a piece that stood on its own of of something uh so that's what i strive for because i think we need more of that um you know in this age of youtube where everyone can just kind of say i like this movie and you know that's the the extent of their their uh, analysis um right. i i um i can't say too much on it uh because i i just signed the contract but i do have a series coming out um that i'm currently writing the scripts for uh, that should be coming out uh, once we film. Um, I'll be hosting um, a series uh, that should be coming out towards the end of August, which uh, is leaning into what I'm talking about, which is digging into the history of, uh, of films and things. So I'm re- I'm nervous about it, but I'm excited <laughs> about that. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, the first the season one. Is what I'm working on right now, no, so I'm, I'm, I'm really to, excited about that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to <laughs> peep you out on that. No, that that sounds great. Let me let me ask you this: um, Are you a fan of Turner Classic Movies? I don't have the channel. No, oh. I don't watch it. <laughs> oh, so one of the reasons I kind of dropped cable and went all in on like Hulu Live TV is because they didn't have Turner Classic Movies in high def. Oh. Yeah. So now I get TCM East and TCM West. I got a funny story for you. And and the reason 
it's funny it, it's because it is in the horror genre right so every october turner classic movies does this great job of horror movies um and if you you know every couple of years i'll they'll, they'll do like you know the the star of the month right they'll do boris karloff they'll do whoever and it was kind of funny they're one of their i, I love uh, ben mankowitz i think he's fantastic but they have another host named dave carger and Dave, one night, introduced the mummy that Hammer Films did in the late 50s, early 60s with Christopher Lee as the mummy and Peter Cushing in the film. And he introduced it as a, as a remake of Universal's 1932 The Mummy with Boris Karloff. And I had a fit. Because that's not what it was a remake yeah. of. It was a remake of The Mummy's Hand in 1940, which launched the actual Mummy series that uh, that Universal did that that had Lon Chaney Jr. as the Mummy and 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 some other folks. And you know, I actually took to Twitter to correct him. And, I love it. I love yeah. the horror geekery, right? <laughs> and, and he actually acknowledged, "Oh, thanks, great, I appreciate it." Yeah, um, you know, it's it's really interesting. Somebody had put out on on a Universal group. They were talking about um, the Werewolf of London, starring Henry Hull, and it made me think of this moment in the film. It actually uh, predicts future technology. It predicts a doorbell camera. Oh! If you go back and watch the Werewolf of London from 1935 with Henry Hall, Henry Hall's in his laboratory, and somebody comes to the door, and there's this little thing. It almost looks like an iPad on his work table. And, and uh, a picture comes up of who's at the door. Huh. And this is 1935. <laughs> right? And, and you know, you know how many years later, almost 100 years later, we have such things, right? So, mm -hmm. so what I always find, science fiction does this better than any other genre, but I also find that horror tends to predict some future stuff. Oh, yes. Right? And so I always, I, I took a long, long, hard look on my blog at how Star Trek predicts future technology. But horror has done it, you know, for years as well. And what I find interesting, we call it a horror story or a horror film, but, you know, Mary Shelley pioneered the science fiction genre. She did. She did. <laughs> 100%. So, uh, you know, where can uh, where can my listeners find you uh, online aside from everywhere, Chauncey? Yeah. Oh, I was just also. Can I just add? Oh no, you add whatever you you say. <laughs> no, go well, on. I'm, you talk about yeah. Mary Shelley. It was also interesting, you know, because um, I learn things when I do research and stuff. I actually had forgot about. I thought like uh, the vampire story, Carmilla. Um, mm. I didn't know that came before Bram Stoker's oh, yeah. um, Dracula, and and that was a thing of the of a female vampire. Like, there's so much, you know, progressive type stuff in in the horror thing mm -hmm. as well, which is why I get kind of and you know, um, one of the ways I got into it and that in comic books and stuff is my father. He's a big comic book and horror fan. Uh, he always watches Spinguli. Um, mm -hmm. Every weekend, uh, playing the uh, you know the, the various uh, horror movies and stuff. So mm -hmm. it's just such a, a great history and such a great genre. But how about the of. fact that that Elvira just came out? 
recently. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, that's awesome. Isn't it? And I'm, just, and she, I'm just like, yes. <laughs> I was like, hey, girl. <laughs> exactly. I mean, no, it's funny. I was talking to a coworker recently and she had no idea who the hell Val, uh, Elvira was. And we were, oh. we, right? We were talking about this kind of thing because uh, in advance of, of this uh, recording, uh, Darcy, uh, the male girl, started following me on Twitter, which I think is absolutely fantastic. She's that's uh, awesome, yeah. Yeah, Joe Bob Briggs' uh, co-host on The Last Drive-In. And mm-hmm. we were we were talking about this. That's the other thing. I grew up on something called Chiller Theater, but there was no like like in-person host. It was just like a voiceover that introduced the, the late-night horror movie. But people like Sven Gulli are still alive, Elvira, um, things of that nature. And it's been parodied in film. Right, you go back to Fright Night and and yeah. uh, Roddy, Roddy <laughs> McDowell's character, right? What Peter Vincent? Yeah. Um, uh, this is this is stuff that that's part of the fabric of the horror genre, and I think it it's, is. It's great that Spengoolie is still doing his thing. But yeah, I mean, I touched on it a little bit, and you brought up Carmilla. That's a lesbian vampire story. Yes. And if you look at <laughs> Dracula's Daughter, which is the quasi sequel of Universal 1931 Dracula with Bela Lugosi. There's a lot of overt lesbianism in that film. And if, mm-hmm. if you if you haven't seen it in a while, go back and watch Dracula's Daughter. It, it's a really, really interesting thing. And I believe it was post-code. So the, by the time that oh, film... Oh, that's yeah. big if it was... Po- and it got through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. They're in post-code, yeah. Yeah, because it's like right at that edge, right? Because my favorite film of all time is 1933's King Kong. Mm. I love this film. That's one of my father's faves, too, yes. (laughs) Right? And I'm going to be talking about it on my friend Aaron Chapman's uh, YouTube show, uh, Morbid Planet. Awesome. uh, Yeah, if you look, you know, she talks about all kinds of great uh, things in the horror genre, too. I encourage you to uh, look her up. Um, She recently uh, interviewed uh, Doc Stoker. Right, so the the great grandnephew of of Ram Stoker, uh, Mm. and and I'm going to be on uh, her show talking about King Kong. But one of the things I, I now. The thing that bothers me about the movie, and I always look at it through that 1933 lens, but you know the portrayal of the natives really bothers me even mm-hmm. to this day. And I have to, I have to, you know, I got to shut that lens off, the 2022 lens, um, yeah. <laughs> right, right. But the, but the thing about it, watching the documentary Horror Noir, um, really brought home the fact that there was a lot of racism brought forward in that film. Right, King Kong is supposed to represent like the scary yeah. black man, and I, I've never thought of it that way. Right, yep. I just thought it was this great monster movie. But when you think about it, you know, through that lens, you're like, eh, yeah, you got a point. And I think, yeah. I think when Peter Jackson remade the film in 2005, he made it a point to avoid that stereotype. So that's good, right? I mean, the the natives on the island were not, you know what you would consider, you know, Africans in that, in that sense. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the guy who played the native chief in King Kong was the Nubian in the mummy with Barlow's Boris Karloff. I did not know that. Noble Johnson. (laughs) His name is Noble Johnson. Yep. So see, you learn something new every day. See, there's that history. Learning new things. That's why I love this, this, this industry. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and and absolutely, and I think one of the, the overarching things that we can take away from this conversation is the fact that the, the horror genre really does 
turn that, that mirror or that microscope on the stuff that really, really makes us uncomfortable as human yes. beings. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it exposes the, the, you know, our own uh, frailties. So I agree. And, uh, and I think uh, the future of the horror genre is exciting, especially from the filmmaker and the horror novelist perspective. And, you know, as a critic, just looking at a lot of this stuff as someone, yeah, just being, I, I look, I relish in being able to analyze so much of some of these great things that are coming out and just dig into it. You know, I love that. Yeah. And, you know, I think folks like yourself, um, with the, with the unique perspective that you have, uh, really, really is going to, going to further the discussion and the commentary about the genre, because I think, unfortunately, and people do this with romance too, from a literary standpoint. But people do this with horror so much they want to minimize it. They want to shove it. Oh, that's just horror. That's just a horror novel. That's just a horror movie. That's that's not worthy of consideration, conversation, or or further discussion. I, I don't know if you've discovered that or or seen that, but it, I I hate. Oh yeah, that. I I tend to call it like it gets treated like the redheaded stepchild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's what they call that kind of like sort of like the outcast type of, of deal, you know? I think that's why the whole elevated horror came about because they couldn't justify giving a horror movie such praise. Uh, you know, they started calling things, uh, it was elevated horror and social thriller. Those are the two oh, yeah. phrases. <laughs> and it was like, it's a horror movie. But it's like, Sorry. Right, but but it's like, it, it's like what we were talking about before, right? With, with the speculative fiction thing. Just like with a, horror is horror. Right, I mean, we yes. we're not, we can pigeonhole it from from schlock to elevated or whatever. It's all it's all horror for crying out loud, and you know we can sit here and and slice it six ways to Sunday. And I think Rebecca McKendry, who used to be with Fangoria, and she's had this like horror university podcast for a couple of years now. She did a great episode on what the definition of horror is, um, and it's like you know what? Why do we even have to define it? It's, yeah. You know, or uh, people want to, oh, did it scare you or did it do this or did it do that? It's like, you know what? Did it entertain you? That's yes. all. That's what I'm looking at. Did it entertain exactly. me? Exactly. Right? My all time horror, my all time favorite, just so you know, for your edification, I still think it's the scariest movie ever made 1973's The Exorcist. I think I thought you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, it goes into that whole thing. You know, uh, I did a uh, episode with my friend Aaron that hasn't dropped yet talking about Rosemary's Baby. And we were talking about all this satanic stuff that was going on in the late 60s and 70s and all those those films. But, um, you know, I think the, the future of the genre is in good hands with a lot of folks, including hopefully myself, uh, that write about it, talk about it and and continue to tell stories in that genre. And then we have folks like yourself who continue to further the, the discussion, critique, and and inform people that, look, this is a viable medium. The story, yeah. the storytelling here is valid and necessary. Yeah, agreed. Well, Chauncey, this has been fantastic. I have really enjoyed talking to you. I've enjoyed getting to know you uh, beyond uh, us following each other on Twitter and, and peeping, peeping you out on uh, YouTube and, and other places. Uh, I hope you uh, feel the same. 
I I do. I, I didn't answer your question before from where people can find me. I ended up talking about something else. But well, no, I- that's fine because because I was kind of pivoting to the you know kind of starting to wrap up the show and, and didn't give an opportunity to comment on that. But no, you're right. I mean, I, I think, you know, Mary Shelley is, is a, a subject near and dear to my heart as, as far as, um, you know, what she contributed and created. And I read Frankenstein not that long ago again. And, you know, it, it was really interesting, you know, the departure in filmmaking from the book. And uh, what's funny is we're supposed to sympathize with the monster and that, you know, Victor Frankenstein or Henry or whatever his name is, is the true monster. I'm like, yeah, but you know what? The monster actually enjoyed what he did. Mm. As much as we want to sympathize with him, he still enjoyed exacting revenge. And that's where it's kind of, kind of the, the, the line of demarcation for me. But well, I think it just also shows the gray area, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> No, Which is awesome. right, and and some of those people, you know, or you know, Frankenstein himself, he deserved that retribution. But at the same time, you know, the monster took great pleasure and glee in what he was doing. So, mm-hmm. you know, and and the, the problem with him was he wasn't responsible for for what he was, uh, and and being rejected by his creator was was you know the the crux of the whole thing. But the films tend to just concentrate on the creation part of it, not the morality. And, yes. and I think you start to see a little bit more of that in recent uh, treatments and adaptations as opposed to the stuff in the in the 30s where we're like, yeah, let's just shock the hell out of people. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, where uh, where can people find you online, Chauncey? Um, well, you can find me on Twitter at Miss Chauncey K-R, M-S Chauncey K-R. Um, also on, um, I have a Facebook page, Twisted Woman C-K-R. Um, that people can join for latest updates. Um, also, I have a YouTube, Twisted Woman, uh, CKR, as well. And uh, you can also find me at uh, People's World, which is an online news publication where you can find some of my written, a um, few more of my written articles. And you can also find me on Tomatoes at under Chauncey K. Robinson. <laughs> What's the K stand for? Catherine. Okay. It's my name. <laughs> all right. All right. Chauncey Catherine Robinson. That that's uh that's an elegant name. I like it. Thank you. Yeah. So Chauncey, I want to thank you for uh joining me here on the Get the Knack podcast. I hope you had a good time. I did. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You have an open invitation to come back. We'll have to do this again, especially when some things, uh, some new films uh, come out in the next few months. We've got uh, uh, a Salem's Lot adaptation coming out. We've got Morbius coming out on April 1st. Uh, uh-huh. Spider-Man villain starring uh, uh, Jared Leto. I'm really looking forward to that one. So, the Black Phone is coming out. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, that looks really exciting. Yeah, it does. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll keep following you on Twitter and, uh, and on YouTube and, and reading what you write. And, uh, hopefully, uh, those out there interested in horror, uh, will, will peep you out as well. Chauncey K. Robinson is an important voice in, uh, film, TV, and, and all things in the horror genre. Thank you. You're welcome. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Knack podcast for my guest, award-winning journalist, film and TV critic, talk show host, actress, and a lot of other things, Chauncey K. Robinson. I have been Jerry Knack. We'll talk to you next week.